0: From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, DC, I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China, and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the US. And it's also a hub. For crafting strategies to protect the American people. If you're anything like me, you can smell the Memorial Day jet fumes. And also, if you're anything like me, you are on the verge of getting out of town for a vacation. Hi, everyone. This is Michael. Thanks for tuning in to this latest episode of Great Power Podcast. I am minutes away from closing up shop, hopping in the car with my better half, and heading to the beach. For Memorial Day, I hope a lot of you are on the verge of doing the exact same thing or something similar. For your listening pleasure, I wanted to make sure to get this episode out before the holiday weekend starts, and this is, I think, a great topic to talk about, not only because we haven't talked about the Korean Peninsula yet on this podcast. But there have been some interesting developments there. It, it it still staggers me after working on Indo-Pacific issues for, uh, I guess about a decade now. It still amazes me how crowded and complex this this part of the world is. I mean, not, not only is the Indo-Pacific a massive region. If you're an American uh, defense official, foreign policy official, you're looking at multiple different problem sets, and if you look at just within the first island chain, if you start up from Japan, go down to Taiwan, then down to the Philippines, that's what defense planners call the first island chain. Just within that issue, or just within that region, there are three pretty intense problem sets for the United States and our partners and allies. You have the South China Sea, contested body of water that Beijing is claiming in its entirety as its own, uh, a lot of island reclamation, military sites that China has constructed. Uh, that is a potential tinderbox. If you go up, you see Taiwan, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast. It's, it's a potential powder keg uh, geopolitically and, and militarily. But then if you go up even further north, you get to this peninsula Uh, that Americans have quite a bit of past experience with in the 20th century, talking about the Korean Peninsula. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, I've been writing this book for the past year and a half or so about U.S.-China competition, finding ways to sabotage China's Belt and Road Initiative, and a lot of that research led me into examining China's dynastic history, in which Korea features prominently a lot of uh, Korean historians have called the peninsula uh, the shrimp among whales. It's literally caught in between China and Japan, and it's difficult to count the exact number of times that Korea uh, was the subject of invasion, colonization, and a pretty a pretty intense warfare. Uh, now, the Korean peninsula is uh in terms of day-to-day sure on, on most of the time it's stable uh, but but if any of you remember the outcome of the korean war it wasn't really exactly settled was it it was an armistice it wasn't a peace treaty and north korea led by the kim dynasty kim jong-un at the moment uh, is uh, essentially a nuclear weapon state And South Korea, as an ally of the United States, relies on American nuclear deterrence for their protection. There's an extensive alliance, a deep alliance network uh, that goes back decades. And the United States has staked, uh, has has put a stake into the ground that the stability of the Korean Peninsula matters a great deal to us. It was interesting. The American Foreign Policy Council, the think tank I work at. Led a delegation out to Korea last year, and we took a lot of meetings there. Our, our, our delegation visited Camp Humphreys, which is uh, uh, the headquarters for not only the United States military presence on the peninsula, but it's also uh, the joint UN command. We did not get the chance to go up to the DMZ, unfortunately, uh, but we had a lot of meetings with defense officials, diplomatic officials, some folks in there. Uh, assembly and the uh, the big takeaway that we left with was there's a lot of willingness and even eagerness from Seoul to partner with Washington not just on peninsula issues but even on issues with the US and China uh, but there was some angst there was some worry there was com- some concern about the credibility of America's commitment as an ally Those insecurities and those fears are not necessarily a recent phenomenon. They've been ebbing and flowing for a while, but in the past few years, they have intensified. And recently Washington and Seoul came to a pretty significant agreement on those issues that's been causing South Korea angst and on this podcast today. I want to unpack the details of that agreement. It's called the Washington Declaration. When President Yoon made a state visit to the United States not that long ago, he and President Biden jointly announced it in the Rose Garden, and there are some significant elements to this. I want to unpack that. I want to get into where North Korea's nuclear program is right now and what we can expect things to look like in the next few years. And I brought on, I I was really lucky to get not only one of the foremost experts on this issue in the country and in the world, but a a really, really good friend of mine too. I've looked up to him for a long time. Uh, His name is Bruce Klinger. Uh, He is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He's been doing this for decades. Before he was at Heritage, he uh, was a senior CIA analyst on this issue. And uh, he, he has a way of getting to the heart of the Korean Peninsula, the issues that are defining the conflict there, and explaining it in, in a really incisive way. So, as you're traveling or just resting this weekend, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And with that, let's get into it. Bruce, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Long overdue. Indeed. Glad to glad to chat about this in person together. All right. So we're talking today about the Korean Peninsula. We're talking about recent developments between Washington and Seoul, where North Korea's nuclear program sits, and the path that got us to where we are. It's a lot, but I think we can tackle this. So let's start. With the news of the Washington Declaration between Washington and Seoul a few weeks ago, around the time that the declaration was announced, you had a news hit, I think it was PBS NewsHour or something, and you said that the declaration was meant more for South Korea than it was meant for North Korea. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, deterrence is
1: both to deter your opponents as well as reassure your allies. And the, the declaration really, you have to go a little bit back in time to, to put it into a context. So last year, the US and South Korea, as well as Japan, resumed large scale military exercises that had been canceled or constrained since 2018. And also the U.S. resumed was called rotational deployment of strategic assets, sort of nuclear capable launch systems, uh, which had also been curtailed in 2018. And so by doing that, that was really the, the hardware. That was more the deterrence of North Korea because it showed not only U.S. resolve, but it also showed our capabilities. And after really four years of, of not showing our nuclear commitment, as part of the extended deterrence guarantee, we were resuming that. So that was more of a message towards North Korea, but also had a message to South Korea. Um, During the last year or so, there had been a growing advocacy in South Korea for a nuclear weapons program of their own. And that was due to a number of factors. Uh, North Korea's growing capabilities, reduced uh, perception that negotiations would solve that. Also, sort of a broader deterioration in the security environment. China, China's growing capabilities and, and belligerence towards its neighbors. And then even from far away, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which seemed to bring to many people's mind in Asia that we were no longer in the perceived post-war uh, environment, so all of that had had led to a, a deterioration in, in South Korean perception of its safety. Also, uh, the the vagaries of U.S. politics, the 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 fear identified by senior South Korean and Japanese officials, if Trump is reelected, that the U.S. may uh, undo the alliance, may reduce or remove U.S. forces. So it led to a a great uh, concerned by South Korea, as well as Japan, though, to a lesser degree. Um, and so when I was in Korea in the summer and December and January, it, it really seemed that there was a potential for a crisis, that the President Yun had had several statements or misstatements or deliberate misstatements pushing for a South Korean nuclear program. And And I think there, there was a great response by Washington. They took into account uh, the South Korean concerns. And between January, when I was there and talked to senior officials, and there was a sense of a of a crisis that that South Korea may be pushing for its own nuclear program. And then moving forward to April and and then May, uh, a, a much more reassured South Korean government. That some of the same officials I met with in January, who were quite. Uh, grumpy about the U.S., uh, feeling that we had not been transparent. We had been very reluctant to share our our nuclear strategy. And then when I met with them later, they were very positive about the actions the U.S. had done in really just three or four months. So the declaration was really the culmination of a lot of work that the U.S., but also South Korea had done, And it was, on the one hand, South Korea affirming its commitment to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, so kind of skewing the advocacy by non-government folks for an indigenous program. Mm. Um, And then in return, the U.S. taking additional steps to try to reassure South Korea, this nuclear consultative group, as well as a number of other initiatives, and which I think had had played well with Seoul. So right now, the South Korean government is much more assured. And then we'll now have to see how that new group is operationalized, how it's implemented, uh, and then what impact the messaging from the UN administration to the South Korean public is to to see if the South Korean public,
0: has a lower level of ad- advocacy for nuclear weapons than it had in the past. Mm. This, this is interesting because the, the big idea that you started that response with, that deterrence has multiple audiences. It's more than just the adversary whose behavior you're trying to influence. If, if there's an action they would rather prefer to take, but you don't want them to take it, you need to impose some sort of cost or deny some sort of benefit. But part of doing that is having credibility to your threats. And if you don't reassure your own allies, how credible are, is your deterrence threat to begin with? So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great way to frame it. Um, I, I want to come back later on in our conversation to the shadow of 2018 and the U.S., uh, the, the vagaries of U.S. politics, as you put it. Maybe we can end with that because I think that's enter- interesting note to end on. Let's talk, if we can, briefly about just some of the nitty-gritty details before we get to the big picture here. You mentioned the nuclear... Consultative group, uh, if the ROCs reaffirmed their commitment to the non-proliferation treaty, uh, can you walk through some of the play-by-play for what the U.S. committed in exchange for that? Like, what does this consultative group actually entail when we talk about uh, cooperation about strategic assets? Is that at a tactical level, at a strategic level? Like, what, what does it actually mean? Well, it, it it's kind of complicated and
1: very much a work in progress. Uh, when I was in Seoul a few weeks ago and met with officials, uh, they described the nuclear consultative group as, as a new, very nice teacup, but it's empty. And then I responded, so the US needs to fill it with very strong tea and not weak tea. And, <laughs> and he said, oh, I, I like that. I'm going to use that. Um, so it, it's a way of Kind of deferring the the push in South Korea more so out of government than in government towards an indigenous nuclear program. So in a way, it it's it hasn't solved that problem. It's postponed it. Uh, it's satisfied the un administration. Certainly not the outside advocates, where they will not be satisfied by anything other than a a full bore South Korean nuclear program independent of the United States, but and of the public are the ones that can be swayed by uh, not only US actions, but also the UN administration's messaging. Um, So, but the US has to continue the trend of allowing Korea to look behind the nuclear curtain to have a greater role, if not in the act, it's certainly not the targeting uh, of nuclear weapons by the U.S., but uh, in the the consultative co- coordination uh, aspect of our the nuclear component of our war plan, so the U.S. and South Korea have a, a perhaps the most integrated command structure in the world mm. uh, with the Combined Forces Command. And but uh, to date, the U.S. has been very reluctant to share what our nuclear strategy is, mm. and that has led. Seoul to be, you know, quite critical in in private of uh, you you don't tell us what you will do, what the circumstances are when you will use nuclear weapons, including in scenarios when North Korea has used nuclear weapons. So sort of given that South Korean angst, the U.S. more recently has been more forthcoming. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did a tabletop exercise, which uh, we think is perhaps the first uh, time they included scenarios where North Korea uses nuclear weapons, and in that way, the U.S. can explain its thinking of when it would use nuclear weapons, when it would not use nuclear weapons, um, the rationale for both use and non-use, and and by including the South Koreans in in the not only the war game but the thinking, uh, you know, having them better understand it. Uh, and which is good because you know we have not only this combined forces command we have a an operation plan called 5015 for responding to a full scale invasion by North Korea as well as a number of other contingency plans so it it only makes sense for the U S to incorporate our South Korean allies into this broader broader thinking so. Uh, I think the, the the group is will go beyond what we have done in the past, but we do need to to carry through. We need to continue this uh, more inclusive uh, process with South Korea to make them feel more reassured of our commitment, as well as better understanding the the U.S. strategy, which is all intended to. Uh, defend South Korea against North Korean threats and attacks.
0: Mm. You mentioned that outside advocates in South Korea would be satisfied with nothing short of an indigenous capability. This leads me to a question focused less on less on our politics and more on theirs. Uh, how durable do you think this declaration is across the spectrum of South Korea's domestic politics? Because previously before President Yoon, you had President Moon Jae-in, who shall we say had a quite different relationship with Washington than President Yoon does. I mean, I, I remember when I was a Hill staffer, President Moon was crisscrossing Europe trying to convince Paris, Brussels, Berlin, and anyone who would listen to start rolling back sanctions on North Korea against the wishes of Washington. So if if politics, If the political situation changes in Seoul, again, we're prognosticating, so there's only so much we can say. But in your best estimate, how durable do you think uh, the Washington Declaration is across South Korean domestic politics? It remains very much a a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And,
1: you know, any, any nation is always a bit nervous when it has to rely for part of its national security on another nation. So all of America's allies are always a bit nervous because they have to rely on the United States. So if there's either a, a degradation or a perceived degradation in the capabilities or the resolve, they will be more nervous. So it can be if our weapon systems are seen as, as not as capable as they need to be, or if US policymakers say or do something which calls into question our resolve or our commitment, it makes our allies nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from a, a US viewpoint, even perhaps a cynical US w- viewpoint with North Korea, or I'm sorry, with South Korea, we might say, what what more do you need? We have a mutual defense treaty. We have countless presidential and other senior level of official statements of our commitment. We have 28,500 of our sons and daughters in uniform deployed in harm's way. And we have perhaps hundreds of thousands of American citizens, men, women, and children in harm's way, citizen, you know, non-military. And we can also point to the names of 36,000 American lives lost defending South Korea during the Korean War. Uh, but South Korea, particularly these out advocates for nuclear weapons programs would say, well, we think you might run away now that North Korea has the ability to hit American cities with nuclear weapons. And and it's sort of encapsulated in in this kind of trite phrase of would you really trade Seattle for Seoul? Yeah. And what I have pointed out is rather than kind of that antiseptic decision that a U.S. president might, you know, have to face in in the Oval Office, think instead of scenarios. The the first is there are no casualties. It's just tomorrow North Korea says remove your troops or I will nuke Seattle. Well, the answer is no. It, it's no not a credible threat. It, you know, end of story. The second scenario is there's a, a limited skirmish, there's a, a few casualties. That's not even really a, a situation for combined forces command. It's it's South Korea responding to a, a threat to its national security. But if you get to a scenario where there's a, a conflict with North Korea, not even nuclear. Any conflict with North Korea that goes beyond a a skirmish on the border or in the the West Sea, you're going to have a lot of casualties. Yes. So you now have a US president who, before he makes that Seattle for Seoul decision, it's, excuse me, Mr. President, let me remind you, you have more casualties than 9 11, Pearl Harbor, and perhaps the entire Korean War combined. What US president is going to say, you know, we're good, we're gonna walk away from that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm too nervous about losing a U.S. city. No U.S. president would walk away from tens of thousands of American casualties. What, Amer- what American Congress would allow a president to walk away from that number of casualties? Not only men and women in uniform, and it's all on CNN, but civilian casualties. Mm-hmm what American public is going to allow an American president to walk away from that? So even if North Korea doesn't go nuclear, we're in it. This is not something the U.S. is going to walk away from. So I I sort of point that out to advocates of nuclear weapons is that we're not walking away from that. And then perhaps particularly because it's North Korea, we've had the, the Korean War the president, the Congress, the public is not going to walk away this time with a tie. We're going all in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's take that opportunity to travel north of the 38th parallel here. You've, it, those scenarios are low probability, let's hope, but they are stark and they are grim and they're sobering. And they lead to, I think, really natural questions for Americans because for decades now, they've been watching North Korea inch closer and closer and closer to a fully functional nuclear deterrent. They've demonstrated, their through nuclear tests, they have warheads. Uh, They've demonstrated the ability to miniaturize them. They've demonstrated the ability to deliver them on regional and intercontinental ballistic missiles. To my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bruce, I don't know if they have a working reentry vehicle or not that's been made public. So correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, But could you just share with our listeners broadly here, where is North Korea? As far as we know from publicly available information, how close are they to having a fully functional nuclear program? They're there. And they have been there
1: for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So without getting into a lot of range Distances and, and missile names. Um, you know, we've we've been assessing they have ca- nuclear capabilities for quite some time. Back in the mid '90s, the intelligence community, when I was there, we assessed they had you know a fissile material for one to two nuclear weapons, and a few years later, we assumed they had made progress enough that they had one to two or three nuclear weapons, and that was back in the 1990s. And then it's only gotten worse since then. Um, you know, estimating how many nuclear weapons they have is always very difficult. Um, But there were some leaked U.S. intelligence documents in 2017, which indicated perhaps 30 to 60 nuclear weapons or nuclear Mm -hmm. weapons worth of fissile material with a capacity for building 5 to 12 more weapons or weapons worth of fissile material. Um, You know, last year, a South Korean defense think tank uh, estimated they probably had 90 weapons, and and part of the RAND uh, Institute project I was involved in, you know, we predicted they could have 200 nuclear weapons by 2027. Mm. Um, for at least a decade, U.S. officials have been saying publicly that they have, you know, working nuclear warheads that have been successfully integrated with missiles, uh, and that they can hit kind of any range they want you know, what I've found over the years is there's sort of been this tendency by some to, to underestimate North Korean capabilities. Mm. So in the 90s, it was, oh, you can't prove they have fissile material for plutonium weapons. In the 2000s, it was a uranium program was just a figment of George Bush's imagination. Yes. <laughs> in 2007, it was you can't prove that the target that the Israelis hit in Syria was a nuclear reactor. Uh, and then- after that it was you can't prove that north korean icbms can hit the united states all of those have now been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt you know to be true yeah and when people point to the reentry vehicle um you know they've had a number of years to you know uh, fulfill that capability and actually some again leaked intelligence documents from the 2017 icbm launches where that the CIA estimated, estimated that the reentry vehicle would have survived had it been flown on a normal trajectory rather than rather than the very mm-hmm. highly lofted trajectory. And you know, it, the timeline is that North Korea has had more time to develop these capabilities than previous nuclear weapons uh, nations have had, where they've clearly demonstrated that capability.
0: Mm. So, the United States has said under Republican and Democratic presidents and consistently affirmed by multiple Congresses that the United States would never accept a nuclear North Korea. What I'm hearing from you is that North Korea is essentially a nuclear state now. So is it it overstating reality to say that this is perhaps a failure of US foreign policy? well
1: successive administrations have tried to prevent north korea from going nuclear and and clearly they are nuclear now so we could say it's a failure on us but it's uh you could point to other examples of you know uh, oh we didn't solve the the soviet union until they collapsed was that a failure for decades until it was a success hmm. um you know and sort of the uh, accepting them as a nuclear weapon state. It, it's a bit of semantics, uh, I acknowledge, but I, I'd say there's a difference between accepting and assessing.
0: Mm. So mm.
1: you know we we can't help but assess that they have nuclear weapons, whatever the number is. Um, but that doesn't mean we formally accept them. Uh, because doing so would undermine 11 UN resolutions, uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, U.S. laws, etc. So, uh, the analogy I think of is: is a policeman looking through a window through in a harmed, uh, armed hostage situation. Is he can see the, the the bad guy with a with a pistol. Well, he he assesses he has a, a pistol. You can't not pretend he or you can't pretend he doesn't have it. Uh, but you don't accept that as, you know, acceptable behavior. So you have to assess the threat, but you don't acknowledge or accept it as, you know, behavior that is in line with the norms of of behavior. So, um, you know, we we have to acknowledge North Korea has nuclear weapons. They have the, the missile means of delivering them to South Korea, Japan, the United States. But we don't formally accept them because that would undermine a lot of UN resolutions as well as the non-proliferation treaty so you know we have to deal with the north korea that it is but you know i i disagree with those who advocate just accepting them formally as a nuclear weapon state as a way of moving beyond the current stalemate in diplomacy
0: to try to reach a breakthrough are are these the same folks who advocate a rapprochement with Pyongyang a la Kissinger and Nixon, who tried to turn uh, Mao and the PRC back in the 70s away from the Soviets and try to split uh, Beijing and Pyongyang, essentially? Well, you put a lot on the table there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think... You know, I, I put all that on, on the table because I remember in 2018, as a staffer, I heard very odd arguments from people I was not expecting to hear these arguments from basically say, listen, maybe we talked to Kim Jong-un, maybe we're able to cut some deal and uh, complicate Xi Jinping's foreign policy calculations. And I was not expecting to hear that from a lot of people.
1: Right. Well, I, I think what we've often seen in the, the Korea watcher community is is it sort of devolves into this oversimplified binary debate of you know, more pressure or more diplomacy. Yes. And and of course, the yes. reality is you need all the instruments of national power in a comprehensive integrated strategy. So as often as you, as you point that out and say, you know, you need more than one tool to build a house or have a policy, it always tends to devolve into that hard or soft debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we need all, all of the instruments of national power. It's often sort of described in a, in a military jargon of dime, diplomatic information, military mm-hmm. economic. So, you know, I was part of a negotiating delegation on arms control in Europe. Uh, you know, we, we didn't like the Soviet Union. We didn't trust the Soviet Union, but we had arms control treaties uh, it because they were very well crafted. They included verification protocols, et cetera. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I think we we should strive for for North Korea. Unfortunately, they continue to refuse any kind of dialogue. Um, as we we strive for that, you know, even if we're very pessimistic now that there is a diplomatic resolution of the North Korean nuclear problem, I think we still try for it. In the meantime, as we try to get them back to the table, either for denuclearization talks, arms control talks tension reduction talks, confidence and security building measure talks, you need to continue to enforce your own laws against criminal activity, as well as enforce the UN resolutions. And then you need the military component of deterrence, uh, and if necessary, defense and defeat of, of an opponent. So, um, it, you know, we're, we're trying to get North Korea back to the table. In the meantime, we need to have the the shield and the, the potential sword of, of defeating them if they do attack mm-hmm. our enemies.
0: Yes. Uh, I want to go back to that analogy you brought up a few minutes ago of you're a police officer working with a hostage situation and you see uh, the hostage taker with a gun. And in all those movies that all of us have seen with that hostage scene, the the critical objective of the negotiator is to figure out the motive of the kidnapper because you need to establish some sort of a connection with this person if you want to de-escalate. So what is, what's Kim Jong-un's motive here? What is the, it might be multiple motives. So what is, what, what drivers continue North Korea's long-standing push to acquire a nuclear capability? What are they hoping and planning to achieve with this?
1: Well, they want to maintain North Korea as a nation. They want to maintain the Kim regime in power. Uh, they will point to what they call the U.S. hostile policy as justification for having a nuclear weapons program. Uh, They will say we are continually threatening them and therefore as a small nation trying to maintain its viability against a large nation, they need nuclear weapons. Now, of course, for decades when they didn't have nuclear weapons, we didn't attack them. Uh, It's always been them attacking uh, South Korea and, and the United States and others. Um, you know, either on a large scale as in 1950 or small scale any number of times uh, since then. So the U.S. would say we never attacked you. You know, the the North Korea is the one who has racked up a lot of South Korean and U.S. casualties yeah. now, uh, over the years. It's North Korea that really has the hostile policy. But um, you know, they they point to the U.S. exercises and others as indicating hostility, although. During the four years between 2018 and 2022, when we didn't have military exercises, or we didn't have, we canceled many of them and constrained others, it didn't lead to a uh, any kind of reciprocal diplomatic uh, gestures by North Korea, and it didn't lead to a reduction in North Korea's own large scale military exercises. So they would point to, uh, say, the, the large U.S bombing during the korean war the u.s would respond with well you're the ones who started the korean war so uh but you know during the last time the u.s and north korea had diplomatic talks back in october 2019 under the trump administration the u.s was trying to find some way to move forward on talks Mm. and so the negotiators would say well you say that a uh Security reassurance or an assurance document would allay your concerns. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Maybe we can work with you on that. And then North Korea simply refused to identify the parameters of what they would want. And the U.S. said, well, you talk about a peace declaration or an end of war declaration. What do you mean? What are the parameters? Mm -hmm. And And they wouldn't provide any details. Interesting. And the U.S. said, well, you talk about the hostile policy. What do you mean by that? We know you've identified many in a sort of an ever-lengthening list of, of conditions. But what do you mean by that? Perhaps we can take measures to allay those concerns. And they refuse to provide details. So, you know, it's very hard to have a not only negotiation, but a, a diplomatic discussion when one side refuses to put on the table what they mean by even certain definitions. That that makes
0: diplomacy difficult for sure. Yeah. Very much so. When you don't define what you want. I think a, a subject that overshadows North Korea's capability and its ability to withstand economic sanctions, not just the United States, but of uh, many of our partners and allies and Uh, the countries that have uh, acceded to the resolutions you mentioned, uh, the the UN resolutions, Uh, one of the reasons North Korea has been able to withstand a lot of that is because of China, uh, specifically economic assistance of China. And uh, this brings to mind a position I've heard you state for years, which is if we really want to improve not just our negotiating position with North Korea, but our own national security. One of the things we have to do is start enforcing our own laws and fully enforcing our own sanctions. So uh, when you say that, there's an implication there that we're not doing that, that maybe we're leaving some leverage on the table and China isn't everything about that, but it's at least a part of it. So Bruce, when you say fully enforced sanctions, uh, what, what what is that history that you're that you're getting at? Successive
1: U.S. administrations, both Democrats and Republicans, have sort of talked a good game or talked a tough game and then underachieved, even in fully implementing U.S. law. So I mean, taking a, a, a step back, the sanctions or pressure—it's it, not a silver bullet. Um, just as diplomacy has obviously shown itself not to be a silver bullet, we've had eight international agreements with North Korea on nuclear weapons, which is both arms control and denuclearization, all have failed. Um, South Korea has 253 inter-Korean agreements with North Korea, all have failed. Uh, that's not to say we don't try for additional ones, but we sort of have to acknowledge that you know, for those who say sanctions have never worked, we should give up, we should do something new like diplomacy. Well, there's a track record with diplomacy as well. What I point out is is Sanctions have a number of objectives. One is to enforce our own laws as well as UN resolutions. Uh, It's to, number two is to impose a pain or a penalty on those that violate it. You know, you rob a bank, you go to jail. Uh, It's not only to punish those who violate the rules but it's hopefully also a deterrent against additional actors violating those rules. Yes. Three, it, it, it imposes conditions or restrictions That make it harder for North Korea to to import items they need, including money from illicit activities for their nuclear weapons and and missile programs. Four, it makes it harder for them to proliferate technology or or weapons. Uh, And then five, in conjunction with all the instruments of national power, it's to try to moderate or alter their behavior. I, I would argue on four of the five, they've been successful to some degree. Now, But what has happened is, you know, even on our own laws, administrations have tended to kind of politicize or make law enforcement into a diplomatic measure. Mm. So, you know, we have laws against counterfeiting. We have laws against money laundering. We have laws against human rights violations, and we haven't fully enforced those. So, for example, uh, in June of 2018, President Trump announced there, I I am not enforcing sanctions on 300 North Korean entities because we are, quote, talking so nicely to North Korea, and it would be an insult to Kim Jong-un. Well, once the talks collapsed, we didn't impose, we didn't go after those 300 entities. And it should be pointed out, it's, 300 North Korean entities violating U.S. law in the U.S. financial system on U.S. soil for which the U.S. government has evidence and has decided not to enforce those laws. Uh, There was also a list of 12 Chinese banks that Congress sent to the White House in 2017, uh, including the four largest banks in the world, including Bank of China, that Congress felt were committing money laundering crimes in the U.S. financial system. Yes. The administration took action against none of them. And you know, we in the past, the U.S. has imposed you know, eight to nine billion dollars in fines on British and French banks for money laundering for Iran. We've imposed zero dollars in fines on Chinese banks for money laundering for North Korea. So it, I, I'm baffled as to why we've we've pulled our punches when it comes to China. It seems with both North Korean and Chinese entities, we've 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 decided not to enforce our own laws as a way of trying to use it for diplomacy. It's, we'll hold back for now, hoping that the, the, the opponent, knowing we can do more, will get them to change their behavior. We've been holding back for how long now? Well, I, you know, if you go back to, I think it's 2005 with the Banco Delta Asia action, when the Bush administration finally, after years of the U.S. turning a blind eye to North Korea, violating U.S. laws, decided... To impose uh, targeted financial measures against a bank in in macau and people would say well it was only twenty some million dollars it's not going to have an impact but a north korean official told a white house official at the time you finally found a way to hurt us that's right and the big impact was that it caused three dozen financial institutions to cut off their engagement with north korea including the bank of china who defied the government of china and cut off North Korea because they That's were right. fearful of U.S. sanctions. So it had an influence, if not on North Korea, on those banks or businesses that were facilitating North Korean behavior. And then when the when the Bush administration reversed itself in order to, you know, make a, a better, you know, atmosphere for negotiations, well, then Bank of China and others went back to engaging with North Korea. So, you know, it it, it it not necessarily would have solved the North Korean nuclear problem if we had maintained those sanctions, but it would have sent a signal that the U.S. was finally going to start enforcing its laws, and it would have given, if nothing else, legitimate banks and businesses much more pause in engaging with North Korea, because they wouldn't want to be you know, facing secondary sanctions by the United States. That's right.
0: You... You mentioned the decision in 2018, 2019 not to reimpose those sanctions after the talks broke down with North Korea. And I think this is an appropriate time to circle back to the vagaries of U.S. politics that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. One of the reasons you mentioned, not the only reason, to be clear, but one of the reasons you mentioned that South Koreans, the South Korean government, is feeling some anxiety about commitments from the United States is because of the unpredictability of our own domestic politics. Not that long ago, uh, President Trump was questioning the value of the alliance and whether or not we would even keep troops in South Korea at all, not to mention his desire to back out of the chorus trade deal with South Korea. I remember reading some of the opening pages of a recent book. It was Bob, one of Bob Woodward's two books about President Trump. I can't remember which one it was, but the opening was a directive from Trump to withdraw from chorus. And then there was what, what preceded was this haphazard effort among his senior staff to prevent the actual paper from landing on his desk for him to sign. Uh, I understand why a lot of people in South Korea got not just heartburn, but some legitimate concern about those years. I really do. And we're, we're approaching silly season again in Washington, 2024 stuff is coming up again, who knows how it's going to play out. Um, what's your sense, Bruce, on the resiliency of our commitment to South Korea? How do you see that playing out in our domestic politics?
1: well, as as I said before, all allies are a bit nervous yes. about the u s. uh their their fear of entanglement or abandonment. The, the us. will get them involved in things they don't want to be involved in or abandoning them and uh, thus leaving them vulnerable to outside threats. Uh, so there's always that underlying concern and and any number of issues can kind of trigger that. And over the decades, I've seen any number of occasions when, when South Korea was nervous because of of, uh, even a a perception or a misperception of of U.S. action. Uh, But President Trump made very clear his questioning or even disdain about some allies, particularly it seems South Korea and Japan. Uh, During the 2016 campaign, he sort of said, well, why shouldn't Japan and South Korea have nuclear weapons? Why are we paying so much to, to be over there, et cetera? Um, during what was called the Special Measures Agreement uh, negotiations, which usually are every five years, and what they are, what those negotiations are, is that even though it's in our the U.S. strategic interest to have our forces deployed overseas, sort of like having policemen in bad neighborhoods rather than sitting back at headquarters, uh, the host nations provide uh, some reimbursement cost or offset cost. Um, Again, it's it's sort of like the the neighborhood um, shopkeepers paying for some of the cost of the policemen, even though it's in the city's interest to have the policemen in those areas. So over the years, it's been usually an incremental increase in the host nation support. Um, During the Trump administration, he directed his negotiators at first to require cost plus 50%. In essence, making a profit off of our sons and daughters in uniform. Uh, my son and my father are and were Marines. That's not why they joined. Uh, then afterwards, it, the the cost went the number went up, so that the U.S. was demanding a four hundred or five hundred percent increase in the South Korean and Japanese contribution for U.S. forces. It, it turned alliances into transactional relationships. And President Trump had said he would remove or uh, reduce or remove U.S. forces if we didn't get enough money in compensation. It caused a huge strain in the relationships. Um, and then when President Trump came in, I'm sorry, President Biden came in, uh, we accepted an incremental increase and and the issue was resolved. But there was the concern that uh, if President Trump comes back or... Another isolationist president that the u s. will not value its alliances to the same degree as we have for for decades. And in my discussions with Korean and, and Japanese officials, they they mention that by name as a, a reason for concern and even a reason for the advocacy in South Korea for an indigenous nuclear weapons program.
0: We will see what the future holds for our own politics, won't we? I hope. That future includes a continued commitment to our friends and our allies, particularly our friends south of the thirty-eighth parallel.
1: You know, I, I've I've been working on Korea for thirty years now, uh, almost half of my life. And and you know, any of the the American Korea watchers, we get pretty passionate about Korea when you work on it for quite some time. You know, it's it's not just an analytic exercise; it really becomes an issue of your heart and not just your mind. And so we all have very strong feelings toward the Korean people, the miracle on the Han their, their you know repair and resurrection after the Korean War uh, and, and a lot of respect for the Korean people and and pride in the alliance that the U.S has with South Korea which enabled that nation to rebuild. And you know overall our allies, have been you know a positive force for the United States. It's in our interest to have a stable Europe, a stable Indo-Pacific region. Um, it's in our national interest. And so, you know, we, we all hope that one day we'll see a unified peninsula. Yes, but it has to be, you know, according to the terms of Article 4 of the South Korean Constitution, based on the principles of freedom and democracy. So until that time, the US, I think. You know, needs to be there as an ally, defending our our ally to enable it to someday reunify the peninsula, based on those principles of freedom and democracy, and also respect for law and respect for human rights. Yes,
0: well, speaking of this being personal, uh, thanks to your grandfather and your son for their service to our country. Thanks to your service uh, to our country, Bruce. As as some of you may know. Uh, was a a very senior intelligence official uh, in in the CIA for a long time working on this very issue. And uh, one of the most level-headed voices on this issue right now. So thank you very much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.